Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. This Friday, the 2022 Winter Olympics kick off in Beijing, the second Olympics to take place during the COVID 19 pandemic and the first ones ever to be held on entirely artificial snow. On this week's episode, Dr. Madeleine Orr joins us to talk about how climate change is threatening the Winter Olympics and what the ecological impact of the Beijing Games will be. But first, Japan Times sports reporter Dan Orlowitz joins me halfway through his packing as he prepares to head off to Beijing. Dan Orlowitz, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks for having me and happy Lunar New Year. What a week in which to celebrate that. Yeah, happy、uh, Year of the Tiger, which you'll be、uh, quite fittingly starting in Beijing as our reporter on the ground for these Winter Olympics. You've squeezed in some time now to talk to me before your flight. Are you feeling prepped and ready? As much as I can. Still have a bit of packing and organizing to do. Still have a few stories、uh, that I've been working on ahead of the games that I'm trying to, to write out. But I. I think I'm ready as much as anyone else has been ready. And it, these are certainly some of the most unique Olympics to be getting ready for. Just, we thought Tokyo was wild. Boy, if only we knew what was waiting for us in China. <laughs> well, so Beijing, like Tokyo last summer, is going ahead with these games despite the pandemic. And, well, with the even more contagious Omicron variant of COVID 19 spreading at the same time. The games are expected to bring around 11,000 people from overseas to Beijing. So, what measures have been put in place to allow these games to go ahead despite the pandemic?、Uh, well, China has taken a very strict line、uh, on COVID. Their zeroed COVID policies,、uh, mass testing,、uh, very strict lockdowns. They can shut down an entire city. Uh, in an instant, if, if they want, just, just for a few positive cases.、Uh, and the border situation is also very tight, even tighter than, than Japan's,、uh, which, as we know, has come under a lot of criticism. Most people coming to China have to quarantine、uh, for three weeks,、uh, two of which are in a government facility, and then I believe a third week is at home.、Mm. Uh, those of us who are covering the games、uh, don't have to quarantine for three weeks if we are、uh, vaccinated. So that's the first step. We have to take two PCR tests in the four days before the flight,、uh, register for uh, China's uh, green QR code, just their health authority issues the all clear、uh, in consultation with your local consulate or embassy.、Uh, there's lists of approved testing sites that the Chinese embassy has approved. Some of the lists don't match up with some of the other lists. Uh, which is fun. <laughs>、uh, and a- as for the personnel who are flying in,、uh, there are sort of these limited charter flights、uh, that the Olympic partner airlines have set up.、Uh, and so those are coming in from a number of hubs, I believe Tokyo, Singapore, Doha, or Dubai, a European city that I can't remember at the moment. And these flights are reserved for people associated with the Olympics, they can't be boarded by the general public. Yes, so this is athletes, media, officials, coaches,、uh, everyone is going in on those, and、uh, everything is socially distanced, masks all the way in.、Uh, and so we fly and we get to Beijing and in, into the next part. Okay, and so once you get there, you enter this closed loop system, and this is the system that's been put in place to separate. Everyone associated with the Olympics from the general public, and which allows you to avoid the 21 day quarantine 
So tell me a bit more about that system. How, how does that work and what kind of you know, measures will you have to follow when you actually arrive in China? Well, from what we've seen from people who've already arrived at the Games, you, you get to Beijing's airport and uh, staff there just fully decked out in hazmat suits. You have to show that all of your paperwork is in order, that you have the the appropriate QR codes on your phone. Uh, you have to do a, a PCR test, and, and I, I've heard they are not gentle, <laughs> uh, not at all, uh, with that Q-tip. Straight up the nose? Yeah, just, just straight up into the brain. Uh, I'm going to come back and not remember second grade at all. <laughs> and uh, you're put on a bus, and the bus is completely sealed, and sent to your hotel, and you uh, have to go to your room and stay there. Uh, until uh, your test comes back negative, and after that, you can join the closed loop. In Tokyo, uh, for context, uh, media coming in from overseas uh, had to spend 14 days in the bubble, and then they could go outside the bubble to do reporting. And this was one of the eventual compromises that Tokyo 2020 made because uh, the media didn't want to just be stuck in their hotels the whole time, and they wanted to go out, out on the street and do reporting. Right, but China's approach with these Olympics sounds much stricter. China's taking a, a much stricter approach. So we can go to the venues, we can go to the media center, we can go to our hotel, and we can get into the uh, buses, uh, the games taxis, uh, or whatever private rental vehicles there are uh, to get us between those three. And that's it. So there's no side trips for you to the uh, the Great Wall or the Forbidden City? Nope. I, I went there last time I visited Beijing was about uh, 10 years ago now. Uh, and I, I went to both of those spots and I will not be able to to go back and, and revisit and take the before and after pictures. Um, we are, in theory, uh, totally isolated from the public, uh, from everyone, really. Even the media are going to be largely separated from the athletes. There will be opportunities for the media to interview the athletes, but there are going to be more measures in place than the, the two meters distance that was in the mix zones at Tokyo 2020, as you experienced as well. Sure, sure. And just to confirm, these games are completely closed to the public. So like Tokyo, it's going to be a completely spectatorless Olympics. Right. It's going to be VIPs, I think some sponsor people. And uh, I've read reports that school children uh, were to be let in, similar to how... Uh, the Tokyo Paralympics did allow some children to attend. Uh, whether that comes to pass uh, is another question, given that Beijing is dealing with some Omicron cases. And through this, all of us have to follow uh, the usual procedures, uh, masks the whole time. Not just masks, but N95 level masks, mm -hmm. which is something that not even Tokyo 2020 uh, mandated. So we had to prep those and, and it's it's going to be a process um it's it's going to be an adventure <laughs> and as part of this you have to get tested daily so the question is you know what happens if you end up testing positive for covid19 while you're covering these games well knock on wood yeah, i'm sure you can hear that on my on my microphone <laughs> um if you test positive then either you go to an isolation center if you are asymptomatic uh, if you are symptomatic, then you go to a hospital, which is, uh, I think, the less preferable option. And you, they feed you, they give you Wi-Fi, and if you do test positive and you're in that situation, you, you can rejoin the games after, I, I believe, 10 days. It's either going to be 10 days or, or a certain number of 
days of, of negative tests. Uh, they have been a little flexible just because of the Omicron situation and the fact that it is so transmittable mm. uh, and, and the symptoms are relatively light. So what we record now may not be the case by the time this is published, by the time I get to Beijing, you know, by the time the Olympics are already in progress. It is a very fluid situation. So with all these measures in place, how successful has Beijing 2022 been so far in preventing the spread of COVID-19 amongst participants joining the Games? They've had close to uh, 200 cases so far, 175, 200. Uh, I think we're in that window. Those who do test positive you know, will be able to return to action. I think they need two negative tests. Uh, close contacts can continue their duties uh, but they do have to take uh, more caution. They have to stay two meters apart from people instead of one. They have to make sure they're dining completely by themselves. Uh, and it's very easy to become a close contact. It's just a matter of where you're sitting on an airplane. If, you, if you're one or two rows from somebody who tests positive uh, when they arrive. So it's as successful as Tokyo. I think that the the virus doesn't really care Mm. I, I don't mean to be glib, but I, I think that if if it's going to infect you, it's going to infect you. And even with so many people taking so many precautions, cases are just going to get in. When you have 10,000 people uh, converging from across the world, I think that they're just going to slip through. I'm curious about what the Chinese public's view on these games is. Um, because, you know, with, with Tokyo, there was a big discussion point throughout the whole thing about should these games be going ahead with the pandemic, um, especially with all the people from overseas being brought into the country. But Tokyo and Japan, you know, never really had strict lockdowns. In China, there's still this zero COVID policy. And as you said earlier, it's been locking down cities, you know, with just a few examples of community transmission of COVID. It's got a much stricter approach than Tokyo and Japan. So personally, if I was Chinese citizen, I would be worried that if there were cases being, you know, brought into the country, that my city might be locked down as a result. I think that Chinese citizens have had to deal with the fear of lockdowns for two years on now. Unfortunately, they're not in new territory here. And unfortunately, it, it is very hard to gauge uh, the opinion of the average citizen just because uh, there there are limits to access. We, we don't actually really have accurate public opinion polls. The Communist Party and, and the state and, and the various authorities, they, they want Chinese citizens to be excited about hosting the Olympics again, about their athletes having a chance to do very well in these Olympics and, and to demonstrate China's place as a global superpower. Beijing, I believe, will be the first city to host both the summer and winter olympics but there is the question of well how much do, does china care about winter sports because they are relatively new you, you know you, skiing is not necessarily a, a popular pastime although it is growing uh, hockey uh is sort of starting to get popular but it's not the thing and, and certainly figure skating isn't as huge as it is in say south korea and japan uh and russia and, and elsewhere in europe it, it is sort of introducing a, a billion people to, to winter sports at a level that they have not really experienced before. So there, there, I think there will be some curiosity, there will be interest, and there will be that patriotism. Uh, and overall, I think that 
Chinese, the Chinese public will want to see the game succeed because they want to see China succeed, and that's a big part of it. Countries such as the US, the UK, Australia, Canada have enacted a diplomatic boycott of these winter games due to the allegations of human rights abuses of the Uyghur population in China and also in the wake of the disappearance of Chinese women's tennis player Peng Shuai. Athletes from those countries will still be attending these games, but diplomatic officials won't be. What is Japan's position going into these games? Uh, Well, Japan isn't committed to the full diplomatic boycott. They, they're hedging their bets because uh, I think they want to maintain civil relations with China, if not friendly. Uh, so they, they will be sending uh, Japan Olympic, or Japanese Olympic Committee President Yasuhiro Yamashita. Uh, they will be sending Seiko Hashimoto, uh, who was the president of the organizing committee for Tokyo 2020. Uh, they will be sending Kazuyuki Mori, who's president of Japan, the Japan Paralympic Committee. Uh, so they are officials. They are, they are from the government, uh, ostensibly, but Kishida is not going to fly over. Uh, you're not going to have any cabinet representatives in Beijing. And that lets China save face. It lets Japan save face. And it lets Japan be able to take the position that it is sort of standing in solidarity with the United States and, and its other allies who are uh, doing this this full boycott. So it sounds like Japan's uh, spinning a lot of plates and trying to keep them all balanced at the same time. What's China's response been to the diplomatic boycott? Not happy. They've said that, that the United States should stop politicizing sports, stop undermining uh, the Beijing Olympics. Uh, what you would expect China to say. I think that they they are trying to make themselves out to be the aggrieved party. I I think that for them, it is not just the Olympics. It is the geopolitical situation, and it is uh, trying to make a statement. This is not uh, the friendly China trying to show to the world that, you know, yes, we are open. Uh, Yes, you know, we can host a game, host an event like the 2008 Olympics. This is a much more nationalistic, hawkish China, whose place in the world, you know, especially with, with the pandemic, has shifted. And then they've, they see an opportunity to, to take an even bigger role in the geopolitical scene. And so any, any affront to that uh, is something that they take very seriously. I think it should be noted that, you know, there's been quite a few countries, I'm thinking like Italy and France, who you might expect to join a diplomatic boycott, but who have refused to do so. I think President Macron described the uh, the US's boycott as symbolic and insignificant. So it's not got widespread support amongst all Western allied nations. Uh, no, this isn't anything like uh, the boycott of the Moscow Olympics in, in 1980 or the, or the response to the Los Angeles Games in 1984. This, this is much smaller in scale those were were much bigger in terms of the number of countries that participated and the rhetoric that uh, was being exchanged at that time. So, uh, quite frankly, again, given the COVID situation, the, the, the fewer diplomats we have flying back and forth, the better. So, I I think we all hope that this doesn't become a huge issue during the Games, 
uh, for a number of reasons. And, and, you know, it's going to be delicate, but we'll see how it goes. Lastly, before I let you go and uh, get ready for your flight, what are you actually excited to see at these Winter Games? Uh, well, th- this will be my first Winter Olympics. I'll have 10 days on the ground and I'm looking forward to getting in as much as I can. Just of the atmosphere and starting very early on, on Thursday night, uh, Smile Japan, Japan's women's ice hockey team, uh, opens its group stage against Sweden. That's going to be a great match, uh, reigning uh, world number ones, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I think the big one in Japan and around the world will be the men's figure skating competition. Yuzuru Hanyu, Nathan Chen. Hanyu's been working on that quad axle. Uh, Nathan Chen is looking to uh, avenge his Olympic showing in Pyeongchang four years ago. I think that's going to be the highlight. uh, And everyone in that arena is going to be very lucky to see it. And hopefully I'll be one of them. Well, Dan, have a fantastic time in Beijing. I know we'll be speaking to you once you're there. um, And thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. Looking forward to it. And uh, I hope everyone follows our coverage and uh, enjoys the ride. That was Japan Times sports reporter Dan Orlowitz. Dan and I will be doing a live stream about his experiences at Beijing on Twitter on Monday evening at 8pm Japan time. We'll also be taking questions from listeners, so please do join us there and then to get involved in the discussion. Follow the Japan Times' Twitter account to be notified when we go live. More details in the show notes. After the break, Beijing is making history as the first games to be hosted on entirely artificial snow. But why is it so reliant on the fake stuff? Dr. Madeline Orr joins me to discuss. Are you looking for a new job? Then today's sponsor might be right up your alley. Today's episode is brought to you by RGF Professional Recruitment Japan, the bilingual arm of Recruit, Japan and Asia's largest recruiting and information service company, helping thousands of people every year to unleash their potential. RGF partners with multinational and domestic businesses with a global outlook in Japan to provide market-leading bilingual talent across all industries. Their career consultants ensure that your job search is smooth and stress-free whilst identifying the best opportunities to meet your career and personal goals. RGF specialises in finding positions for skilled professionals across all functions of enterprise technology, professional services and consulting, consumer technology, back office and finance, industrial and manufacturing and healthcare. Visit rgf-professional.jp, that's rgf-professional.jp, to register your resume and unleash your potential today. That link is in the show notes. Welcome back to Deep Dive. Despite the efforts of COP26 at the end of 2021, the world is still on track for several degrees of global warming by the end of the century, posing a significant threat to winter sports around the world, which rely on cold temperatures and regular precipitation. I'm joined now by Dr Madeline Orr, a researcher who focuses on sports and climate change at the University of Loughborough, and who is the founder of the Sport Ecology Group. Madeline Orr, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is exciting. Your organisation, the Sport Ecology Group, just put out a report about how climate change is threatening the future of the Winter Olympics and also about the ecological impact of the upcoming Games in Beijing. In the report, you write that the Beijing Olympics will make history as the first Winter Olympics to take place on virtually 100% artificial snow. 
why is this game so uniquely reliant on artificial snow? The reason Beijing is so uniquely reliant on artificial snow compared to past cities is Beijing is mostly a summer destination. Yes, it gets cold. Yes, they get smatterings of snow here and there, but it's the kind of snow that falls from the sky and mostly sticks for a day or two and then goes away, or in most cases just melts as soon as it hits the ground. So it's not tenable conditions to have natural snow, and as a result, they're having to produce it all themselves. And was this always the plan with Beijing, that it would be using artificial snow? Yeah, that's a great question. It allows me to make a good distinction here, right? We always knew Beijing was going to be on artificial snow. Beijing knew that. Beijing, actually, all of the stats that are in our report in terms of how much artificial snow is being produced and how much water is being used actually came directly from the Beijing um, pre-game sustainability report. So the question then around climate change is a question more of, okay, where can we go, right? If Beijing is not the place, if Sochi and Pyeongchang are not appropriate because they also had significant amounts of artificial snow, where are the snowshare locations? Because ultimately when you host a games, you want to have a great couple weeks of an Olympics, great 10 days of a Paralympics, but ultimately you want to have facilities that will be used ideally in perpetuity to produce more sport opportunities for people in your country. And you know, it's one thing to think about the water use in Beijing for the two weeks of the Olympics and the Paralympics immediately after. It's a whole other thing to think about them using that water indefinitely to produce snow like this each year to continue those opportunities. Right. And that's a really interesting point, because when you hear that it's all being hosted on artificial snow, you don't necessarily think about what it takes to actually produce all that snow or what happens to that snow once it's no longer needed at the end of the games and it starts to melt. And I think this is what your report does such a good job in highlighting. So what are some of the impacts of hosting an Olympics entirely on artificial snow? So there's a couple. The impact of actually pulling water in the first place. In this case, uh, 49 million gallons is the estimate provided by Beijing. Researchers in the University of Strasbourg in Switzerland have actually said it could be higher than that based on temperature fluctuations. So, for instance, if it were to get a little warmer on a couple of days and all of a sudden that night they have to reintroduce a whole bunch of extra snow to make up for any melt, that could push those numbers above 49 million gallons, which is already crazy. Yeah, can you can you put 49 million gallons into context somehow? Like, that just seems like a crazy amount of water. Like, I, I don't know how to even visualize that. Yeah, it's a hard one to visualize. Um, so they're producing enough snow to cover 800,000 square meters. It's just a crazy amount of snow. So to do that is one thing. To do it again and again and again, right? Like part of the reason that Beijing got these Olympics was because they promised 300 million new people would be introduced or offered the opportunity to participate in winter sports. Mm. And from the International Olympic Committee, for example, or from Beijing, frankly, that's awesome as a goal because all of a sudden like there's amazing health benefits off the back of that, potentially some social benefits, potentially jobs, all these great things, right? But the environmental cost of that is going to be quite significant. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the water being used, it's also the energy required to pump it uphill and spray it out into the air to cool as snow. You know, the other issue you explore here is is snowmelt. What happens when 49 million gallons of water melts onto what is usually a very arid landscape in the region that all the snow sports are being held? What are some of the impacts here? This is where scientifically it gets more complicated because it's not just a case of calculating how much water is being pulled. It's more a case of figuring out when that snow melts, how will the soils and the plant life underneath that react? When that all melts and it's going to flow downhill, great, but the soils at the bottom of the mountain, can they accommodate that much water? 
likely not. Um, so how does that how is that managed? Beijing officials have put in some really interesting technology in terms of water capture. So I'm very hopeful about that. I think that they're you know they really are doing their best given an impossible situation. But I think it's one of those things where you know is that technology going to be rolled out at every Chinese mountain moving forward, like it's just a really kind of challenging, complicated question of ultimately, is it ethical to host climatically untenable events in order to meet other goals? Or is there maybe another event that could be hosted there? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Your report also examines how viable it's going to be for past Winter Olympic host cities to host the Winter Olympics again in the future considering the fact that global temperatures are expected to rise significantly over this century. What did you find? So uh, my colleague Walker Ross and I put out a study in the in the fall looking at the next 10 years worth of um, event locations. And what we found was all of them will be impacted by climate change in some way. So in this case, the conversations around snow and resources at Qatar, it's around heat at Los Angeles down the line. It's about air quality and heat, Paris, probably heat. The other piece of research that's been really instrumental is work by University of Waterloo, Dan Scott and his team, and and they found that of the cities that have hosted a Winter Games in the past, only a handful will be viable climatically to host an Olympic Games in 2080 if we continue on a high emissions track. If we were able to curb emissions, we actually maintain many, many more viable host cities. So I think in all likelihood, what's going to happen is we're going to fall somewhere in the middle, right? We'll hopefully curb emissions from where they are now, but it won't be quite enough to hit that low emission scenario. And we're going to fall somewhere in the middle. And so in that scenario, we'd see about less than half of previous host cities have eligible conditions, snow conditions to do this again. Right. So places like Nagano or Chamonix might become too warm and have too little snow to host a winter games in the future under high emissions scenarios. How are athletes responding to these changing conditions? Because, you know, they're going to be feeling it before anyone when they're competing at such a high level. Yeah, it's been really mixed, actually. So some athletes really like the conditions on artificial snow because it's slick Mm. and it's fast. And so that can be a lot of fun if you're racing. Other athletes are quite concerned, um, particularly in aerial sports, for example, where you're jumping and then landing on something that's not so soft anymore. Or for um, Nordic skiers, they've raised a lot of concerns. And biathletes, actually, International Biathlon Union just put out a report, I would encourage anyone to check it out, that surveyed all biathletes and asked about how they feel about climate change. And there's a huge level of concern there as well. Overwhelmingly, there sounds like to be a lot of concern, but in terms of the actual quality of the competition itself, um, you know, the team at FIS, which is the Federation for Skiing, has done a good job of maintaining that quality. So it's not, Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's really the concern. It's more like the enjoyment and the fear of the future and fear of seeing their kids maybe not get to do the same thing that's starting to weigh on on these athletes. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned Nordic sports, which uh events like cross-country skiing. And that raises an interesting question for me, which is that sports such as cross-country skiing developed not, you know, to be a sport, but also as a means of transport in Nordic countries. And as a result, it's pretty easy to get into that sport because it's part of the culture there. Are athletes worried that grassroots opportunities for winter sports will disappear as a result of climate change and shorter winter seasons? Yeah, there's definitely a pipeline issue there, right? So if we think about the elite athletes who are in the sport now, and this goes for all winter sports, frankly, including skating sports, hockey has an issue with pond hockey, so on and so forth. But 
when you think about the pipeline of where the future athletes are going to come from, if it's not possible to ski in good conditions close to home, how many people have the resources to go further to get to those conditions? So that shrinks the pool, right? Like there's an equity question here as well in terms of who has access to these things already. If you look at who's competing in winter games and you look at you know, where they come from and, and what their financial situation is. In most cases, these people come from middle and higher income families because winter sports are really expensive. It's really expensive to maintain a hockey arena or a figure skating rink. And so if you're getting time on that ice, you're paying a pretty penny for it. So if that gets more expensive because the resources are harder to come by, all of a sudden we're pinching, we're economically pinching some people out of the sport as well. Right, right. So is the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, doing anything to try and reduce the contribution of the Olympics to climate change? Yes. The IOC has a sustainability office that has several people working in it with different tasks. Um, One is responsible, for example, for the Olympic movement, helping every international sport federation to move in the right direction, to adopt targets and find ways to strategize uh, climate action and nature-based solutions and all these other things. They're doing really good work in that space. The challenge becomes, you know, when the IOC awards the event to a host committee, the host committee assumes the responsibility for that event. Um, So the IOC just licenses it, essentially. And so Mm -hmm. they have very little control over the sustainability efforts of that place. Increasingly, we're seeing host committees really take it to heart and take that on. Beijing, for example, is going 100% renewables. That's awesome. Um, You know, some of their facilities are being reused. Again, that's really cool. It could more be done, yes, right? And and that's kind of like in my line of work where it gets tricky is I want to cheerlead on the one hand all the great stuff that's happening. And the other part of me is like, these are huge organizations. I want more. And, and that gets really tricky to navigate. So they are doing good work on this. I think the office at the IOC working on this could use like 100 more people to do it. And like if if there were some sponsors out there listening to this podcast who wanted to send them millions of dollars to accelerate that work, that'd be cool. You know, right? <laughs> like it's just when you're the IOC and you're tasked with um, growing sport participation in all sports as the bottom line, gets really hard to to say no to like a bid from Beijing where they're saying 300 million new sport participants. Like that's really hard to say no to. Sure. But at the same time, you know, obviously it's in the IOC's interest to ensure that these events can go ahead in the future. And when we're talking about the idea that previous hosts of the Winter Olympics will no longer be viable because they won't have enough snow, then that calls the whole Olympic movement or at least the Winter Olympic movement into question. And when we look at Tokyo last summer, there were so many discussions about the crazy heat and doing all these events in in high heat and high humidity so i guess my final question to you is like do you see a future in which the winter olympics no longer actually happens due to global warming oh you're breaking my heart you're breaking my heart with that question (laughs) um because i don't like to think about it but if i had to yes yeah I can see that being one possible version of the way this goes. I think there's time to stop that from Mm. being an inevitability. Uh, There's room to move away from that conclusion on this. Um, Absolutely. But I do see it as one possibility. I was going to say the hard realization that comes with this report. And it hits me personally because I love skiing. I grew up in the sport. It's the realization that some of these things that we love may not be good for the planet anymore. It's one thing to ski on natural snow. It's another to drive to a mountain because most people don't live right next to it. 
you're skiing on snow that was produced artificially using a ton of energy for lifts and lights and all the rest like ultimately it's a very unsustainable activity which is really hard to grasp because the people who ski typically are out there because they love nature Mm. And and like I feel it as a Canadian, you know, the Olympic slogan is ice in our veins. The loss of winter is going to be emotionally catastrophic for communities where this is a big part of their culture. And Canada's part of that, US in certain places, mm. parts of Europe, parts of Japan. There are places where the communities rely on this. It's it's their lifeblood. So to lose that is going to be really, really hard. And and it's one thing to focus just on like, oh, these Olympics are a canary in the coal mine and oh, here's the issues of artificial snow. But ultimately the bigger picture, the part that's so hard to wrestle with is we could lose this element of our culture. I do not want to see that happen. I think it's a possibility, but I'm really hopeful that we'll get creative with some solutions here. Well, Madeline Orr, thank you so very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was Madeleine Orr. I've put a link to her report, Slippery Slope, How Climate Change is Threatening the Winter Olympics, in the show notes. On Tuesday this week, ahead of the Games, Japan's House of Representatives adopted a resolution on the serious human rights situation in China. The resolution, which will be sent to the upper house at a later date, said that the international community has expressed concerns over issues such as internment and the violation of religious freedoms in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, Tibet and Hong Kong. The resolution, which was watered down during debate, did not directly use the word China at any point in the text and steered clear of expressions such as human rights violation, instead using the phrase human rights situation. My guests on this episode were Dan Orlowitz and Dr. Madeline Orr. Many thanks to both of them for joining me on today's show. And if you want to catch mine and Dan's live stream from Beijing next Monday, make sure you follow the Japan Times Twitter account for more details. Dan will be sending regular reports from Beijing, so please do check the Japan Times website to see all of our coverage of these upcoming games. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you so much to everyone who has done so already. We'll be back next week. But until then, Potskare Summer.